Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Your top story this morning, China emphasizing de-escalation. One quote from the Ministry of Commerce spokesperson, all it took to give equity futures a big lift. He said the following, China has ample means for retaliation, but thinks the question that should be discussed now is about removing the new tariffs to prevent escalation of the trade war. Here with us in New York, Andrew Hollenhorst, City Chief, U.S. Economist. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Let's just talk talk about that news at about 3 a.m. Eastern, which give S&P 500 futures a rather big lift. How important is that approach from the Chinese? So it's certainly begun to be a risk positive development, but we've been down this path before. We've had cycles of escalation and de-escalation. So I think you have to be a little bit careful here about have we really changed the long-term trajectory in some way. Uh, But yeah, marginally good news. It did not look like we would have an off-ramp last Friday. Monday at the G7, Now, this morning, this Thursday, it looks like maybe we have a little bit of an off-ramp. Is that what this is? I I think both countries are trying to create some off-ramp, some flexibility, some ability to actually get some kind of a deal done. And on the trade issue especially, there would seem to be a lot of potential for getting to a deal in the sense that you have the U.S. that would like to sell things like soybeans and agricultural goods and liquid natural gas and China that probably has demand to buy those things. So I think it, you know, cautiously optimistic about the latest development, but again, it has a long-term trajectory, the long-term outlook really changed. I think you can't say that's changed substantially with this announcement this morning. Good morning to you, Tom. Are you with us this morning? You're participating. I am. I, you oh, know, welcome. Welcome to the, the studio. The markets are terrible. There's hysteria out there and gloom. And go to cash. What are we, 3.6% from a record high? I think it's something like SPX. that, yeah. And yields. I mean, I mean, what's great, John, is it's less hysteria than Tuesday or Wednesday. But the levels that we're at are just extraordinary. Don't still. see the optimism confirmed in the bond market this morning. That's for yeah, sure. 30 year yield comes in another basis point again. Have you changed at Citigroup the Excel spreadsheets? I mean, how do you tweak substantial Excel spreadsheets given the yield structure of the world? So I, I remember about 10 years ago, we had a view that 10 year yield should never go below 3%. Thank because you. Because you just thought, well, there's some potential growth or, you know, can't be below 1% and you get inflation that will be around 2%. So shouldn't the 10 year yield be around 3%? And I think what has changed is, you know, some recognition of the idea that global growth may be slow for some time, core inflation um, and inflation right. more broadly has not gotten back to target. So that's keeping these yields very low, but very, very low levels. I don't Fisher, Irving Fisher way back. Is this just going down to a terminal value on inflation, a terminal value on interest rates, a terminal value on GDP growth, flip that reciprocal and you get out to a 32 multiple market? So all, all of those things that you mentioned have been revised lower. I think that means exactly like you're saying, your discount rate is now lower. That means you're going to support higher valuations for risk assets. So, so all of that makes sense. Is that then, too much math for August? <laughs> Might be too much math for 704, but carry on. <laughs> Andrew, let's talk about the news, shall we? A little bit later today, we get another look at GDP. The trade dispute, the trade war, however you want to characterize it. When we get that second look at GDP, where do you expect to see it, if at all? So the, the headline number can come down a little bit, but I think what's important in that second quarter GDP is that we had very strong consumption, 
very weak investment. And that's been kind of the story of the U.S. economy in 2019 is we've gone to a scenario where all of our hopes for strong growth and continued growth at or above potential are, are really right on the consumer and not on business fixed investment. Um, now, I think it's an open question how much have trade concerns weighed into that weak investment story. Um, there's probably some of that there. Honestly, a lot of that is just the general weakness in manufacturing. You're seeing that globally. Um, that probably would have been occurring with or without the trade tension. So well, not, yeah. not as clear that it's coming through. This the has been data. building for a long time. In fact, it predates the real ramp up in escalation between China exactly. and the United States. It started last spring of 2018. It's a persistent overhang now. It's persistent and the damage is being done beyond manufacturing. The story for much of the last year, manufacturing really ugly, services in the labor market resilient worldwide. In Germany, we're just starting to see some fractures in the labor market. Are we starting to see it spill out from manufacturing worldwide, Andrew? So we're not seeing that so much in the US yet. I think that is concerning that you're seeing it in Germany in the sense that in Europe, you would expect to see this very delayed response from the labor market because you have a labor market that's much less fast to adjust. In the, in the U.S., you can have very fast adjustments in the labor market. Um, we've had manufacturing that's been weak, like you were saying, for some time globally and in the U.S. We have seen some of the non-manufacturing indicators move a bit lower. So ISM non-manufacturing has come down now. Um, it's still at a high level, but the direction of travel is, is to a lower level. So we're not getting too concerned in the U.S. And the labor market still looks extremely strong in the U.S. We'll get more information about that with the jobs report next week. But so far, yeah. very low initial jobless claims and, and high payroll growth. In your micro analysis, are you seeing service sector inflation in the U.S. come down? down to, to, to uh, uh, goods producing disinflation or any indication of that yet? So services inflation has actually been holding up relatively well. Because of rents? Is that rents rent and OER is a big part rest? of that. Right. So you can argue whether that's good news or bad news for most people. So the cost of, cost um, of housing, cost of shelter. I would suggest our listeners would argue that's bad news. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, but uh, but that, that's right. Yeah. Shelter in particular has been supporting the services inflation. Got to get your thoughts on the Treasury Secretary as well. Mr. Mnuchin speaking to Bloomberg, an exclusive interview, talking up ultra-long bond issuance and talking down currency intervention. Let's just talk about the ultra-long bond issuance. The first thing I did was go back to 2017, just a couple of years back, the last time we really discussed this, and the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee pushed back, and they said the following. Yeah. While an ultra-long bond is most likely to be demanded by those with longer-dated liabilities, the committee does not see evidence of strong or sustainable demand for maturities beyond 30 years. Is their advice going to be any different this time around? I would think that that advice would be fairly stable. I really don't think we've changed the landscape significantly over you know a couple couple year period. Um, it doesn't mean that the government can't go ahead and of course the treasury issue. Could, treasury can, can ignore that advice and, and go ahead. Do you think but, they will? But I, I I would think that that advice stays the same. Um, I my best guess would be that this is something that's discussed and ultimately either takes a very long time or they don't actually get to that long term issuance. Um, if you remember that you know when the treasury rolled out floating rate notes when the treasury rolled out the TIPS program. Um, these took multiple years before you actually got there. So, you know, we're seeing yields move today, and maybe that's a reflection of what could happen um, sometime from now. But this is probably a long timeline. Uh, led to some steepness last night, and then we flattened back down again 
this did, morning. Did you so. see our gold while you were in makeup for radio? Did you see our gold segment with Andrew Holland? No, I missed that. We How good was that? It. Did you? In honor of his tenure at Berkeley, I, I should point out where Mr. Dudley went as well. Uh, his tenure at Berkeley, we we killed on Barry Eichengreen's golden fetters. Nice. 26, 25, 25. I'm doing the math. 25 years ago, 26 years ago. And gold. Where, gold did the, where did the conversation go? The gold is, you know, as, as Andrew correctly said, you don't buy gold because it's low yield, but everything else is low yield now because all of a sudden gold's like an equivalent. The opportunity cost of holding gold has yeah. shifted. We've talked about that many times on this show. I know. We, we gave a moment of silence for Edward Morse at Citigroup and, you know, commodity analysis and all Got to get Mr. Morse back on a program. We should, it's been we a should while. drag him on as well. Hey, Andrew, great to catch up with Andrew, you. Andrew, thank you yeah. so much. Andrew, Andrew Hollenhorst there, City Chief Citigroup. U.S. Economist. you look at the yield space and you go, what is going on? Midge Rahman uh, with us with Eurasia Group to answer questions on this. And Midge, this is within a broader Europe. I know we got to do Brexit here in a moment. But as John Farrell mentioned, the Chinese come out with what, John? One sentence? Just one, one, one paragraph sentence, is all it took. One quote. up we go. Midge, my arch question to you is all this China-U.S. stuff, is it of an advantage to Europe? Actually, I think it's a, to, a, to a big disadvantage, Tom, because it creates a, a broader global context with a tremendous amount of uncertainty, which ultimately at the margin, I think, hurts, hurts confidence in the EU. I mean, there's also the big risk of a US-EU trade war in the short term. I think as we move through the second half of the year, there's been a lot of uncertainty in Italy, although the government does seem to be coming together now and of course the the big the big risk which is the the brexit question so i I do think you know the economic cycle in europe is not robust broader concern about the state of the global economy i think feeds into that in a negative way so mitch let's talk about that and what the policy response in a place like germany might be here in the united states this narrative is building that the german government's about to do fiscal stimulus what's the reality on the ground at the moment for you mitch I mean, I think, you know, when, when we talk about fiscal stimulus in Germany, one has to think contextually about the debate in Germany over fiscal policy, the role of fiscal policy, and then, of course, think much more seriously about how robust that stimulus would likely to be, even if the government were to open up the spending taps a little bit. Um, I don't think you're looking for, you know, we're not, we're not looking to, to see anything substantial. I think, I think that's unlikely. If you think about the political context in Germany, it may be helpful. A string of regional elections where the Social Democrats are set to perform extremely badly. The Christine Democrats in crisis to some degree as the transition between Merkel and her successor AKK doesn't play well. I mean, that's not a context in which it's popular to make an argument about opening the purse strings. And I think one does have to think politically and contextually about how robust any stimulus will be forthcoming out of Germany. I'd also say at the European level, you're not likely to really see any coordinated or aggregate response on the fiscal yeah. side. The- no, I, I don't mean to interrupt, Midge. I just think there's so much flow going on uh, between European dynamics, all this distraction of Brexit and such, and the real issues of China, US, and frankly, China and the rest of the world. How does your Eurasia group in international relations, how do you synthesize in where the bond market is? And John, I haven't even mentioned this this morning, continued subtle dollar strength as well. How do you fold that in? As I say, John, I think 
uh, Tom, rather, the, the, the international context, I think, is, is certainly on the minds of policymakers in the EU, and it will certainly galvanize those in the euro area in particular that are looking to Germany to move on the fiscal side. But I just, I just think when one thinks contextually and politically about where Germany is at this moment, at this current juncture, meaningful stimulus that's likely to have a, a big impact on the economic cycle, I think that's still unlikely. So, Mitch, let's talk about what happens at the EU level. We get someone new running the uh, European Union Commission. At the moment, we have a growth and stability pact. And ultimately, the goals of that, 60% for debt to GDP and budget deficits within 3% of GDP. Mitch, do we have to rethink some of those numbers? And will they rethink some of those targets? So the von der Leyen Commission, I think, will probably have a go at streamlining and simplifying the fiscal the fiscal rules there's, there's a whole set of crazy metrics you know you've talked about the debt and the nominal deficit there's also a structural target so accounting for the economic cycle you know how much a, how much a government's actually uh, are cutting on the fiscal side when you when you kind of take off the impact of the economic cycle there's also a debt to gdp reduction target and it all gets it all gets very complicated so i think there is a desire to streamline and simplify again there will be opposition in northern europe in Berlin, but certainly from other countries, the Netherlands, Finland, to any suggestion that the rules should be, um, you know, yeah. should be made should be made easier, more lax. So there, there will be big opposition to that. But I do think the von der Leyen Commission will try. Mitch, thank you so much. Vince Rama with your Razor Group today. I got about eight more questions, but we're out of time. We'll get them on again here. Jordan Rochester, just before we went to air this morning, out of Namura, London, wrote this note, and there it was shimmering. The 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 the, the Brexit thing, it's shimmering. A shimmer and stir- of sterling light is at the shimmering. end of the tunnel. Shimmering. Shall I read you that first line Please. in Jordan Rochester's latest piece? Poetry, Dickensian. The pound will inherently remain difficult to trade, but the latest moves by Boris has galvanized opposition MPs, galvanized. and there is a shimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. He's poetic. Namura's Jordan Rochester joins us right now. Good morning to you, Jordan. Just explain that a little bit more for us. Where is the shimmer of light in the Brexit tunnel? Well, hey, guys. We've been here before, so let's just think about Q1. We had euro sterling, the pound, at the highs, or the pound was at the lows. And when you're at these historical lows, you've got to ask yourself, what are the odds of a no-deal Brexit? They're high. But is it 100%? The answer is no. And we're already at fresh historical lows, pretty much, give or take now. And in Q1, MPs started to legislate. They started to block no deal. They forced Theresa May to extend Article 50, and the show went on, and and we know how that went. So I think they're going to try and do the same, and the market's going to try and use the same playbook. The pound's going to likely strengthen if opposition MPs next week legislate for no deal or the nuclear button, they go for a vote of no confidence and seek a temporary unity government and extend Article 50. And guys, no matter what happens, at some point there's got to be an election. And I think the market has priced that in to such an extent now that the, the path of least resistance in the short term is that we have some sterling shorts that were put on over August, reduced going forward, and the pound goes slightly higher. What's the catalyst for that, the immediate catalyst that galvanizes some sterling short covering? 
Well, it's just this. Uh, if, if you're holding short starting positions right now, you'll actually be quite fearful of something next week that throws a spanner into the works of the no-deal Brexit pricing. So if you look at the bookmakers, they give no-deal Brexit this year at 40% probability. That's the highest it's basically been during this whole run-up to Brexit. And if you have opposition MPs legislate to extend Article 50 or do that vote of no comment, yeah. that probability is going to go down. And the pound, guys, it really does track these odds. You're going to see the pound fly high yeah. on the back of that. George, just moments ago, and you know, it's like in an August day, it's like, so what? Except right now, I think it's actually germane. These are all the places John Farrow's visited in Germany, Saxony, Brandenburg, Hess, Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, am I pronouncing that correctly? Are you going through the regional breakdown I'm going of CPI down the regional breakdown. So they come out with CPI <laughs> in Germany, and the answer is it came in a little southy. Do you assume at Nomura that's going to be what we're going to see through the autumn is, is disinflation nation to nation? I mean, we've had a bit of FX depreciation, which helps European CPI. But that wasn't enough, and the ECB is going to do all of it, all it can. But the options it has left really don't add much to inflation. Add to that, you've got globalization still going on. You've got the tech impulse. You've got the uh, the sort of deliveroos, the Amazon economy, the digitalization of inflation. It's all disinflationary. So these central banks are dealing with cyclical, which is growth is going lower, which means inflation will be on the back burner and go lower as well. And then you've got this long-term structural story about the rise of Asia, the rise of globalization, and in the future, we'll be talking about the rise of Africa. So it's really hard in the Western world to think of high inflation expectations. And essentially, we're all becoming like Japan. Can we just talk about market conditions in Europe right now? So much attention on the Italian 10-year, dropping below 1% in yesterday's session, and it continues to drive How lower How can you have market today. conditions with negative Tom, yields like that? investment-grade euro-denominated debt right now. Is all in negative, right? The yield right now is south of 25 basis points. Just pause for a moment. Imagine that. You're an investment-grade corporate in Europe, and you can borrow at less than 25 basis points. Well, let's translate that. $100, your interest cost is 25 cents. Precisely. Yeah. Did I do okay there? You did fantastically. Yeah, I, I could be on the real yield at some point. I mean, Jordan, can you imagine? <clears throat> That's the situation with financial conditions in Europe, which makes me wonder, incrementally, additional easing is not going to address anything much at all. I just wonder whether they have to, because if they don't, financial conditions will tighten. Absolutely. It would be, things would be a lot harder for them to achieve their mandates if they were to suddenly give up uh, and throw in the towel. But you're right. We live in a world, John, where because of negative yields and fixed income, for you to make money, you have to hope for capital appreciation in what typically is, you know, you, you, buy, you used to buy bonds for yield. Now it's capital appreciation. On the flip side, you now buy equities for yield, for the dividend yield, because at least yep. that's still positive. So real yield's negative. It means that these, these stories can't go on forever. At some point, there has to be a reallocation out of these things. But we are, as we're seeing, the ECB is going to buy more bonds. At some point, the Fed in the future might do the same as well. So just like Japan, yes, it, it seems a bit mad, but you've got these central banks. You've got this one big buyer out there consistently on the bid. It's just it's law of supply and demand. But Jordan, this is important for the foreign exchange conversation as well. Where's the positive yield? Where's the high yielder in G10 right now? It's in the United States. How difficult is it to construct an argument that we're about to see dollar weakness? 
So the one thing that makes everybody in the long term point for dollar weakness is the double deficit, which is the current account for the U.S. and the budget yeah. balance of the government. It's really expanding in a negative way. Almost back to Reagan now, years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So over a five-year period, this always tends to work for the direction of the broader dollar. However, for the next year, we're dealing with global slowdown recession risks. And in this environment, just like Mark Carney uh, mentioned at the uh, Jackson Hole Symposium, it still acts as the reserve currency of the world, and it still has a positive yield versus others. Then how does that play into euro? In euro? You know, we're hearing in interviews, Jordan Rochester, that a lot of people play it off euro. What's the Nomura euro call? We're currently short, Tom. It's a grind lower. I think we're going to get Fair. about 109 in euro. Why is it a grind? Why isn't yeah. it a bang lower? It's because European investors, with all the QE rounds we've had in, over the years, they put a lot of money into emerging markets. And with the sell-off we've, we've been seeing and with the uncertainty rising, yes, there's a good argument to sell euro versus the dollar, but European investors have been bringing back their investments back home in size. So the basic balance, which is like it's all of these flows combined for Europe, has really shot higher uh, to a historical high in one, in one regard. So that's why euro is so boring. <laughs> it's, it's just a grind lower, very little vol. Jordan, most important question of the morning, Palace Villa on Saturday. What are you looking for? Well, Villa's been doing better than uh, expected. Uh, I was at the uh, first game of the season. We were 1-0 up against Tottenham. Uh, and then we lost it and folded in the second half. You lost the Tots. That's the only like, one the Tots could beat. <laughs> I mean, what was harder for me, I was sat in the home end with the Tottenham fans, so I had to pretend when Villa got that 1-0 at the beginning, I had to pretend that I was very angry. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you wear a suit happy. and tie? I mean, I mean, is it, it's the coolest thing to me, this relegation, Jordan. How's it different, you know, being in one league and then going up the next year to Premier? Is it like the same Sunday or Saturday it always is, or is it different? It's really punishing for the club as a whole. So you get much less revenue from uh, not, not ticket sales, but from the TV rights. And you start to lose key players as well. So yeah. you'll have some players in their contracts. Yeah. If they get demoted, they're gone. And we saw that last yeah. time around. So it takes a while to come back unless you get big investment from a, right. uh, a new chairman, okay. which we, we did have. But... It, it took a while. Jordan, we played Joe Elliott and Def Leppard when Sheffield uh, United steps on the field. Which we need is to the, play Ozzy which, Osbourne. Is it Ozzy Osbourne? Ozzy Osbourne. Osbourne. There you go. So, Michael Barr, do you see how encyclopedic they are on this? It, Ozzy Osbourne and Aston mind, Villa. I'm, I'm a local boy of the Midlands too. So Jordan and I are brothers of the Midlands. See how the tone changed there? See? Yeah. Hey, Jordan, Jordan thank, you. thank you. With no more really <laughs> interesting with the shimmer like. there. The shiver of pounds. You know, do, you know what, like, do you know what Peaky Blinders? I, I've never New season it. coming out in October here. It's already out in the UK. What are it's we? Fantastic. Are we in London? It's brilliant. She is the senior vice president for herding cats at Bloomberg. That means she's managing editor of economics, one of our most challenging jobs. Margaret Collins joins us uh, now. Peggy, Matthew Brockett and Rich Miller writing up the latest jawboning right now. What are you hearing from your reporters about the delicacies of the comments forward of presidents and governors? I mean, are they hanging on every word or do we just wait for September 18th? 
We're absolutely hanging on every word, Tom. I think the reporters here coming out of Jackson Hole last weekend, yeah. and then, as you said, we've had a couple of the regional Fed presidents speak this week. They're really trying to determine what the Fed will do in September, but not even just September, in terms of how central bankers around the world, how much room do they really have to potentially stave off a recession and, as Powell has said, kind of keep the economic expansion right. at a record length in the U.S. going when you have all of these headwinds, and particularly the uncertainty around yeah. trade. Uh, Robert Kaplan and Mary Daly with Bloomberg here with Matthew Brockett and Rich Miller at writing in the last couple hours. Give me a GDP update. I mean, there is the uh, uh, Peggy recession watch. How does your recession meter look this morning in Washington? So we're waiting anxiously for the GDP figures to come in in about 10 minutes, around 8.30. What's the nuance? The nuance is, is essentially, what do we see? Do we see consumers, which have been basically holding up this economy, continue to do so? Or do we see more signs that the uncertainty and the impact of the trade war is slowing down manufacturing and potentially dragging down growth? Let's talk about trade, shall we, Peggy? And the latest comments from the Treasury Secretary catching up with Bloomberg, exclusive interview with you guys in Washington. One line really stood out for me. We've talked about the ultra-long debt. I want to talk about the currency. Here's the quote. No intention of intervention at this time. Yeah, no dollar intervention. Exactly. Well said. Dot, dot, dot. For now. Peggy, it hardly rules it out, does it? That's right, Jonathan. That question mark is still swirling. You know, our colleague, as you said, Leia Motion, had a great exclusive interview with the Treasury Secretary yesterday, and she really kind of pinned him down or tried to on this issue of currency intervention. Will the Treasury try to do that? And basically, as you said, left the question. He left the question up in the air. He said, "We don't have any intention of intervention at this time, but situations could change in the right, future." Right. This is critical. I mean, John's question, I think, is really apt, folks. Do we have any? sense in a reporting in Washington that the president or the secretary of treasury have any understanding of the history of unilateral intervention? Yes. And that's why this interview was so much more interesting because the quote that follows is the big one. In general, it's more optimal to do these things on a coordinated basis because of the size and scale of these currency markets. Now to do that, Peggy, they need to get other countries other regions to come along with them, don't they? They do, they do, but also they need to get the Fed support potentially because the Treasury holds about $94 billion that it could use to try to impact the currency markets. But as you said, this is a giant multi-trillion yeah. dollar market. So traditionally in history, the Fed has gone along and matched what the Treasury has done in a currency intervention. And that is a big question mark of whether or not they'd get the Fed yeah. support. Peggy, thank you so much. Peggy Collins, Managing Editor for Thanks, all of Peggy. our economic efforts uh, out of Washington. I like to say this is the interview of the day. Maybe this is the interview of back to school, or even more so, maybe this is the interview of your future your kids' future and your grandchildren's future. We're going to get to that technology with the laureate Paul Romer in a moment, but I've got to go back 
Everybody listening worldwide didn't check the box in December of last year like you did. She wore Oscar de la Renta. You got married the day you got the Nobel <laughs> Prize in Stockholm. That is so cool. Yeah. Was this was this Mrs. Romer's idea or was this Mr. Romer's idea? Uh, well, she remember she's she's Ms. Weber. She's kept yes, her of course, acclaimed at Barnard. This was actually my idea. I uh, mm-hmm. I surprised her um, and. Uh, wanted i thought she would enjoy and appreciate the idea of a surprise wedding so we had a wedding that we invited our family members Ah. to but nobody in the family knew what was going to happen at that little slot that said family photo on uh on nobel day but it was perfect they had to be dressed up anyway yeah so we just stopped at the church and then surprise we're gonna get married that's great and there was no open bar paul romer listen it was great we had no toasts no gifts (laughs) none of that stuff that that complete it was just like a ceremony with the you know the the priest and the church and you know it's a great way to do a wedding enhanced productivity which is of course your acclaim we have so many things we could talk about including some of the more controversial things you've done but i get so much mail about our mystery of this overlay of technology. Let's start with the data. Are we underestimating the value or harm of technology in our statistics? Yeah, I I think the the most important lesson as I've lived through this economy and thought about technology is that every technology brings both good and bad. And we always focus on the good part, but there's always bad as well. So part of the role of government is to react to the new bad that emerges to stop it from happening and then we get the good parts of technology but i think we've been slow to react on signs recently that there's have we been slow to react because it's skewed the benefits are skewed to the elite the elite control things i mean senator warren wants you know another she's not alone want coast-to-coast internet access that seems to me almost the american way yeah i i think the 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 what we see are there's some things that are profitable but harmful to the society and the concentrated uh, interests that are capturing those profits want to continue in that vein so we need to have a system that's strong enough to say we don't care if mm-hmm. you're making money on it it's harmful for people and we're going to stop it Michael Mabusian wrote an incredibly important paper for Credit Suisse, I'm going to say pushing 15 years ago, which is to the victors and the few victors, they get all the gains. All the gains go to a few. They go to the Amazons, the Apples. And it was plotted on a log Y-axis, log X-axis. For those of you driving, don't drive off the road. All that means is straight lines become curved linear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an ugly shot. Are we getting there where the gains go to so few and that has harmful effects yep so one of the costs the harms associated with this these new digital technologies is they seem to have strengthened the returns to the biggest firms they've created this winner-take-all environment and that's also induced a more ruthless form of competition every firm feels like unless it becomes the winner it'll just be crushed Mm -hmm. and disappear so there's a ruthlessness about this pursuit of uh, markets right now. That's did you kind of teach scary. micro at Chicago years ago? Um, uh, I've taught math for economists. Did you, did and, you inflict and micro on people? I did. I wasn't personally responsible for inflicting micro, but uh, the dynamics have changed. Is this Federal Reserve system using a micro structure? that is dated and outmoded because the, the increasing and decreasing returns to scale now are so different? Well, I think uh, I think the Fed is 
the kind of the classic example of an organization that moves cautiously because they understand how close we always are to things starting to unravel. And so they are cautious. I think the thing they're really cautious about right now is the implications of an environment where lots of interest rates are negative and a fear that if we get too close to, in the US at least, and in the world's reserve currency, we get too close to zero interest rates that we may trigger uh, or set the conditions for another financial crisis, trigger a bubble, which then mm -hmm. leads to crisis. So they're, they're moving cautiously. And if we feel like we need some other way to stimulate the economy right now, we should be looking for new approaches on the fiscal side to, to do that, because monetary policy is really in a bind right now. Uh, Paul Romer with us, the laureate folks of New York University. He's, are you I, literally down the hall from Spence and Sargent and the rest of yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a pretty cool hallway. Right. We yeah, were enjoying yeah, Berkeley this morning with DeLong and Ike and Green yeah. uh, and, and the rest. Paul Romer, uh, if you look at your expertise and our growthiness and in our technology and you dovetail it in to the frustration so many have yeah. about Fed policy and its gains to the elite, how do we break apart from that given yeah. the, the modern age? Yeah. Well, I think we've, we've been inattentive. And, and frankly, it's, it's me and my Chicago colleagues, my Chicago mentors. We've been inattentive to uh, some trends that have been moving in a negative direction that the market all by itself isn't solving everything. We were inattentive in particular to this growing uh, gap between the wealthy and, and the poor. The, the inequality has continued to, to increase. And if you look at surveys, like there's a Pew survey out, people expect this will continue in the future. This is something that we could decide to change. There are countries that don't have as much inequality. We could change our policies to minimize that inequality, but we have to focus on mm -hmm. it, take responsibility for it, and set it as a as a goal. But I don't think I would blame the Fed right. for that inequality. Are your students better because they have the advantage of an HP 12C on their Apple <laughs> iPhone, or were we better when we had a Kofel and Esser slide rule where we had to actually feel yeah. the logarithm? I saw I saw a news article recently about the abacus competition. Yeah, in Japan. I, I, and, Paul, Paul Sweeney, can you do an abacus? I cannot, but they I don't am do a diehard HP 12C fan. There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. The Abacus article but, but was great. Re reverse Polish notation still? That's yeah. very good. Yeah, still yeah, works. I, I, I can't yeah. go the other way. Spence doesn't do that. Okay. Right. But, but help us with Abacus and the more visceral mathematics of our childhood yeah. versus the fanciness now. Are we smarter now? I, I think that, like, my kids went to a Montessori school where, you know, they had number rods where they experienced yeah. the physical sense of number. I think physical interaction can be a good way to reinforce basic intuitions. But I think the main thing I would emphasize right now is we have to learn how to interact with other people. We have to learn how to get mad at them, how to uh, kind of reconcile. So what would Thaler mad. of Chicago say about this? You and well, Thaler, did you go to Cubs games with Thaler? No, no, no. You no, should no, do that. No, but what I, would I, Thaler I, say about this? Well, you know, he would say that we're very responsive to the social cues we're picking up. But we're not, I think kids these days are spending so little time with face-to-face -face interaction. Yes. They don't understand their own responsiveness to these things. What and, should our, we're running out of time, uh, and I mean this with great respect, Professor Romer. What is your advice to our listeners worldwide about what to do with their kids yeah. and the technology well, you helped invent? The, the problem here is it's hard to act unilaterally as a, as a parent. What Jonathan Haidt, a colleague at NYU, and I've been talking about is, suppose each school system said, 
here's a middle school where you can come to this middle school only if you, the kid and the parents, promise that you're going to stay off of social media. So it's not just that your kid's off social media, but everybody in the school mm-hmm. is off social media. I think it would be great if there were that kind of option because I think kids need to have more of this face-to-face interaction before they go yeah. into cyber world. Well, never enough time. Paul Rimmer, thank you so much for being thank with you. us, the Laureate of NYU, and just so much to talk about. It's not The most, the most mail I get uh, is on uh, the idea of, of wages and wage growth. The next most I get is on this effect of technology on our society. Paul Romer of New York University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.